This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Now, Tegan won't be with us this week as the Brisbane floods have blocked the exit roads from our house. All is well, and she tells me that critical supplies are holding up. Today on the show, the devastating effects of repeated knocks on the head during sports and which don't necessarily qualify as concussion. How the vast majority of blood pressure machines haven't had their accuracy validated. Are you impressed when your GP or specialist offers lots of treatments or tests? Or do you prefer it when they offer you a do-nothing or do-less option? Your preference might affect the quality of care you receive. Less, maybe more. And two papers published over the last few days seem to confirm that the pandemic coronavirus did indeed emerge from the Hunan wholesale seafood market in Wuhan in December or late November 2019. While not yet peer-reviewed, they do seem to put paid to the theory that the virus escaped from a Wuhan virology lab. Virologist and evolutionary biologist Professor Eddie Holmes of the University of Sydney is an author on both papers. Welcome back to the Health Report, Eddie. Hello, Norman. Let's start with the geographic study. Um, tell us how you did that, because it was really quite involved. Yeah, it was very involved. So what we what we tried to do was really get the best case data we could, so all the, the geographic locations of the people infected early on in Wuhan, particularly from December 2019, that's the first day we have, through into January and February 2020. And then we basically you plot that on a map, and then you do lots of analysis to say, right, where does the, do you see clumping of the cases? Is there a kind of hot spot if you can see transmission? And if there is, where does that hot spot correspond to? And if you do that, that analysis, what you see very, very clearly is there is a hot spot, and that hot spot is the Hawaiian market, seafood market. It's right there. And then if you look then in Jan, that's in December, looking January and, and February next year, the hot spot's kind of gone so that you can see the virus moving from that initial point of origin, the market, out across Wuhan. And it's rather like if you, if you throw a pebble into, into a pond, where it lands, is, then you see the ripples as it moves away. And that's kind of how the virus spread, it, spread then in January and February away from the market. Now, there's all sorts of potential confounders. I mean, the first one is the reliability of the data, because everybody's been complaining that the Chinese haven't been giving up their, giving up their data. Yeah, look, obviously there are, there, are, there are confounders, and we, we try to control that as much as possible. So one one thing is, well, people said, well, maybe around the Hawaiian, and maybe that's where people who are more elderly live. And of course, we know that elderly people had more, more severe disease. So maybe that's biasing it. So we try to control for that. We did lots of kind of random sampling, lots of kind of ways, very clever ways. It actually wasn't me. I actually did this bit too cleverly, but to try and control for kind of biases in the data. And the data is what it is. And on the data we have, it there really is a very, very strong location um, coordinates to that market. And even more, the next bit we did is we looked at within the market. Yeah, this was the so, astounding bit. It actually was, you found that it concentrated on the western side of the market where the live wild animals were being sold. Yeah, this is really quite extraordinary. So the market, even in your mind's eye, the market is like a very big covered market, okay? And it's this in two sides, the west and the eastern side, and it's like a road between the two. I've actually been to this market. It's my photographs are in the paper. And on the western side, that's the air, the side that where the wildlife were being sold, particularly in the southwestern corner, kind of bottom corner of the market. And that's kind of where, when I was there in 2014, I actually took photographs of these things called raccoon dogs. It's very strange kind of animals that are fur farmed in China. 
And they were there being sold illegally in the Western side of the market. If you then take, so what they did in, in, when they closed the market, they swabbed lots of surfaces to look for the virus, like, like we've done. You know, and just to explain, the Chinese at the time thought that's where it was starting from. Yeah, they thought that was where it was from. So they did lots of swabbing. And if you then plot, so it's like the, like the analysis of Wuhan, but now a micro scale, if you then plot where the positive cases are in the market, they're clustered exactly in the southwestern corner where the wildlife were. And the most amazing thing of all is there was one stall that had five positive results. For example, inside an animal cage is one of the hits. That's the very stall that I photographed in 2014 as containing a raccoon dog. Right? And also the drain below it was also positive for virus. So it's really quite an extraordinary coincidence. Now, the other thing that in the second paper, or maybe in the first one, you found that there were pro- at least two events where the virus spread with two different versions of the same virus. I mean, that seems that's extraordinary. Right. And, that, and that's really, I think that's the really key information that you mentioned in your introduction, how it kind of rules out the, the laboratory scale. And this is really the key thing that does that. So we're all used to the variants of concern, Omicron, Delta, whatever, and they all have technical names, the so B1 something, B2 something. The earliest split happened in Wuhan. It's between the A and the B lineages. That's what they're called. It's the earliest division in the kind of family tree of, 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 of SARS-CoV-2. That division happened right at the start in December 2019 in Wuhan. Now, we've known for a while that the market cases were the B lineage. Okay, That's the one that t- took over globally. That's the, the Omicron's a B lineage virus. So we knew that was in the market. Other people have said, well, maybe you forgot about the A1. A1 may have evolved somewhere else in Wuhan. In fact, it may have come out of the lab and then given rise to the B1. That was kind of like the idea people were pushing. What we can now show, in fact, is the A lineage is also in the market. Not only is it in the market, guess what? It's up from the western side of the market as well, where the animals were. Now, if you, if you, then, if you believe a lab escape, what you've effectively got to believe then is that there were two jumps from the lab into that market, okay, which seems astronomically unlikely, particularly because it's a live animal market. It's exactly the place that you would expect a virus to emerge. And that's what you can see. So to so me, the chances... So I understand what you're saying there about the lab event, but it still does my head in that you've got two... Vi- you've still got to postulate two viruses in the, uh, regardless, even coming from the countryside, from a bat, arriving in the market, or is one the mother virus and one the daughter virus? So I, th- I don't think that's as, 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 as unlikely in nature as you might think. So I, well, I think my, my best case scenario, or my best guess right, for what I think would have happened, was that there was a population of animals brought into that market, maybe raccoon or anything else, I don't, who knows, that were infected, and they carried a diversity of strains. And that's exactly what happened back in SARS-1 in 2002, 2003. The early animals, this is in Guangdong province in southern China, the civets and also raccoon dogs, they had a diversity of strains. So I think... I I think there was a an outbreak in these in these wildlife animals. They've got a diversity of viruses, and they more more than one got into humans. And another thing we did in the second paper is we worked out exactly when these events took place. And it looks like the B lineage came first, and we think that was probably in early December 2019, no earlier than late December, late November. So probably early December for the B lineage, and the A lineage came later. We think maybe mid to late. Um, December 2019. So it all kind of fits very well. 
And just finally, this emphasises what we were talking about a few weeks ago, which is to control future pandemics, we've got to control the wildlife trade. Yeah, to me, this is like number one or two on on our kind of hit list. I think number one has to be climate change, because the more climates change, the more animals group together, virus will will jump between them. And people will change their subsistence because of a change in climate. And they'll interact more with wildlife, they'll cut down pristine forests, they'll get exposed. That's number one. Number two is these the live animal trade these animal markets and i've shown you some other papers they are these animals carry lots of viruses and they're shedding viruses from their nose and their feces people are handling these these ungloved i mean it, it is a biosecurity risk and so we have to very strongly regulate this or not if not stop it completely because to me it's a it's an accident waiting to happen eddie thank you as always Pleasure. Professor Eddie Holmes is at the University of Sydney and we'll have the links to those papers so you can read them for yourself on the Health Reports website. Next to smoking, high blood pressure is the most potent risk factor for heart disease, stroke, premature brain ageing and probably dementia. And to know if your blood pressure is high, you need to measure it from time to time, duh, as they say. But that could be a problem. An Australian study found that fewer than one in five upper arm cuff machines, that's where the cuff goes around your upper arm, had been validated in only 8% of wrist cuff machines. Now, an international review of over 3,000 devices has found that only 300 of them had been validated for accuracy, 10%, or it's actually about 9%. One of the authors was Professor James Sharman of the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Welcome to the Health Report. Thanks, Norman. Hi. This this sounds extraordinary. 8.8% of blood pressure machines had been validated for accuracy. Yeah, it is extraordinary, isn't it, Norman? It's actually, um, those were the risk devices of which the validation status was a bit less, but overall, it's still not much better. Upper arm cuff devices, 23% on average. Um, And really, I guess the extraordinary component is these are medical devices, really important medical devices, as you mentioned in in your introduction. And there is a certain expectation that when you've got a medical device, such as a blood pressure device that's been passed by the regulatory authorities, it should have been appropriately tested for accuracy. But unfortunately, there are some loopholes that exist. And and a big one is that um, manufacturers can actually conduct their own in-house accuracy testing and the device can be passed and approved for marketing and sale without actually having passed much more rigorous, internationally accepted and internationally recommended a validation um, accuracy testing procedures. Now, the most accurate blood pressure machines are the automated ones rather than one where you puff it up and let, it, let, out, the, let out the air. Um, does this include the blood pressure machine in your doctor's surgery? So the, the devices specifically we're talking about are the automated blood pressure measuring devices. So these are the ones that are designed to emulate mercury or the, the when, when you listen with a, a stethoscope, um, that the mercury column-based measurement of blood pressure is actually the reference standard. So these automated blood pressure devices are designed to emulate that mercury-based measurement. And these are the ones that there are thousands of them available for sale and the vast majority of them have not been rigorously assessed for, for accuracy. Including the ones that doctors buy for their surgeries? So the extent to which it it does, it it could indeed include those devices used in surgeries, but predominantly the market, if you like, where this and the people that are most likely to be affected here are those people that are purchasing devices online to measure their their home blood pressure, because this is recommended 
we know that we can get... Home blood uh, pressure is more accurate than well, yes. surgery because of the nervousness, perhaps, in the surgery. E- exactly. And because there's a lot more measures at home, you're measuring in the morning and the evening and averaging all of those values and just instead of just taking a snapshot of the clinic measured blood pressure. So we need these home blood pressure devices to be accurate, though. And um, this is probably where the, the, the most significant impact is. How do you know val- whether a device, a device has been validated? So the validation itself is conducted with using a very rigorous um, standardised protocol. The results of those tests are then made publicly available, published in the peer-reviewed literature. This is the recommendation, at least. And so chasing down those published studies is one way. Another way is actually to go to the regulatory authorities where they have the listing and all the all the information relating to validation status. But this is not this is not something that the general public or indeed no, health professionals are aware of. No, you've got to do work to buy a hundred and twenty buck blood pressure machine. A- absolutely, and and really, I mean, our argument is that shouldn't be the case. Our argument is that only appropriately validated devices should really be available in the Australian and indeed um, global market. But that's not the case. And do we know the extent of the error in validated? I mean, presumably some non-validated machines will be reasonably accurate and some won't be. Do we know yep. how much, what yep. the spread is? So that, that's, that's a reasonable um, assumption. We don't, every single um, blood pressure device is actually u- unique in its own right. And that is that the company has its own proprietary protected algorithms and processes to estimate blood pressure. So each device has has a certain level, a degree of error. Each device has to be tested. So we can't actually say that there is a systematic error associated between among non-validated blood pressure devices. But what we do know is that the variability is greater, the magnitude of inaccuracy is greater, so it's more likely to be an inaccurate blood pressure measure if it is a non-validated device. And that's been assessed through various measures. Potentially huge public health issue. Absolutely. Um, and you've got a website that um, where you can find out a bit more about this. Yes, yes. Rather than just highlighting the problem, we wanted to actually do something about it. We're doing a lot of things, including um, creating some educational material. So we do have... Uh, website on how to check the the validation status of, of a blood pressure monitor. It's not exactly straightforward, so we've we've put in step step by step um, instructions. And we've we'll, also got yep. And we'll sorry, have, go ahead. And, you know, and, and we'll have a link to that uh, to that website on the Health Report website. James, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Norm. Professor James Sharman is deputy director of the Menzies Institute for Medical Research in the University of Tasmania. Now, your personal preferences for more or less medical care could determine the quality of care you receive and expose you to treatments you don't need that cost a lot and which can risk serious complications. That's according to a recent Australian study. Senior author was Professor Kirsten McCaffrey, who's director of the Sydney Health Literacy Lab at the University of Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report, Kirsten. Oh, thank you, Norman. Nice to be with you. Now, tell us about the scale on which you you were measuring people in this research. Sure. Well, this is called the maximizer-minimizer scale, and it's been developed by a colleague in the United States, Laura Shearer. And what the scale assesses is people's underlying general preference for more or less health interventions, so more or less test treatments and medicines. 
And so what we know is that people who score higher on the scale are what we call maximizers, so they tend to like more tests and treatments. And we know that people who score lower on the score um, are described as minimizers and tend to like less tests and treatments. So you did a survey, and you were doing a survey of men and, and looking at their preferences for prostate cancer treatment. Um, but you also looked at the features of people who were on the maximizer side or the minimizer side of the, of the scale. What did you find yeah. about who's on what part of the scale? Yeah, that's right. So, well, what we did was we gave a large sample of Australian men some information about prostate cancer screening, so about benefits and harms in the form of a decision aid. And at baseline, we measured their preferences as well as their um, their preferences on this maximizer, minimizer scale um, and also their demographics. And then what we did was we looked at how well people had understood that information and whether they made an informed choice. Because the risk here is that if you, of, of being overdiagnosed with prostate cancer and getting treatment you don't need that can be quite damaging. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what we've found is we've done a lot of work trying to communicate clearly about cancer screening and particularly about the harms of cancer screening and overdiagnosis. And we know that's an important harm that's often poorly understood and hard, hard to communicate clearly. So what you found was that people on the maximizer side, unsurprisingly, chose, you know, understood the information less and were more likely to go for treatment of their prostate cancer. Um, what were their features? They, they, they had trouble understanding the information. Um, yeah, that's right. So as, as you said, the, so people who were maximizers had lower lower scores on the knowledge on our knowledge quiz for overdiagnosis and the harms of screening and they were less likely to make an informed choice. And in terms of their features, um, those men, some, well, there were low, men had lower health literacy, um, but we're not quite sure what's going on in terms of that health literacy relationship. Um, we think that it might indicate that um, we haven't done a very good job in communicating about the downsides of screening to a mainstream audience. Um, but really, I think what's important in this research is it shows that um, people, aren't a uh, people aren't a blank slate when it comes to taking on health information. They have certain um, traits um, and pre-existing beliefs and, ex and expectations, and that influences how they attend to the information that they're given. Um, so we can use that information quite helpfully to kind of realign or re um, refocus people's attention to information that they might otherwise ignore. So this could be any man or any woman. It's not really related to how much you earn or your level of education. It's, it's, it's more this tray. Um, in fact, yeah. sometimes when you've got more money, you think, I'm just going to spend anything just to get the better treatment here, and it might not be yeah. the, the right thing. So how do you shift people on this scale? Because it's quite critical, because they're getting low-value care potentially, uh, costing yeah, themselves and the, and the country a lot of money, as well as side effects. Yeah. Look, that's a really good question. We don't know yet how we shift people on the scale. I think what we can say, though, is that this information can be used, for instance, by healthcare providers if they know their patients are strong maximizers or strong minimizers, um, that they can help direct that patient's attention to information that otherwise that patient might ignore. Um, 
and also you know when we're when we're giving people information online, we're increasingly giving them information online. You know, we could collect that information and then orientate the information we give them or tailor it to them in a way that kind of forces them to pay attention to information, again, that they might otherwise ignore. So what sort of question um, would you ask somebody to decide whether or not they're a maximizer or a minimizer? <laughs> well, um, there is, so the, the scale is, is a 10-item scale. Um, an example of one of the questions is, um, let me see, here's here, um, doing everything to fight illness is always the right choice and you kind of agree, strongly agree or strongly disagree with that. Um, and there's a whole series of sort of questions like that. And there is now a single item um, question that you can use. Um, and so we could start so using that? those kinds of questions. Um, that question is, let me get it up now. <laughs> In situations where it's not clear, do you tend to lean towards taking action or do you lean towards waiting and seeing if action is needed? And then there's a response scale. So you could use those kinds of questions to then kind of either, you know, prioritize which order you give information in, for example, about benefits and harms. And we tend to so, re resist the notion that doing nothing is always an option. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we do. We do. And, um, and it's hard to overcome some of those biases in the kind of standard way that we present information because people are always rushing, they're busy. As I said, they've got kind of pre-existing kind of beliefs, expectations, and we tend to sort of take this, you know, have a top-down approach to information. Um, so they kind of, you know, um, filter out what they're not expecting to see or don't want to see. The job continues. Kirsten, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Professor Kirsten McCaffrey is behavioural scientist and director of Sydney Health Literacy Lab at the University of Sydney. In recent years, the awareness of the potential risks of repeated knocks to the head, the kind endured by those playing contact sports, has been growing. Much of that is due to the work of researchers in the United States, where former professional football players have been studied, revealing the harms of concussion as well as repeated subconcussive hits. One of those harms is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, also known as CTE, a neurodegenerative disease that can cause immense suffering. Right now, it can only be diagnosed by studying the brain after death. A local brain bank that was set up to better understand the effects of head trauma on the brain has found signs of neurodegeneration in all but 21 of its donors, most of whom played rugby union, league or AFL. It's helping to provide answers to families who watched helplessly as their loved ones went downhill. Sarah Sedgi reports. Renee Tuck remembers how much her brother loved playing football. Shane played AFL, did a bit of boxing throughout his life. He was very much a go hard or go home kind of guy. He loved being an athlete. He's greatly missed and he was a very good man. Almost two years ago, the former player Shane Tuck died by suicide. He was 38. In the years before his death, Renee and her family saw her brother struggling. And we gathered as a family to try and figure out what was going on and, and that included some hospital visits and some medication and electroconvulsive therapy. Nothing seemed to be working. So when he did pass, mum and dad with his partner Catherine decided that it would be best to donate his brain because mum was after some answers because things weren't adding up. An autopsy of his brain revealed he had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, a neurodegenerative brain disease. CTE can manifest in different ways, including aggression or memory loss. 
and it can only be diagnosed by studying the brain after someone has died. It's such an individual thing I've found with CTE. I've spoken to an, a, a few families who have lost a loved one as well and each one is so different. It can present as mental illness, it can present as depression. Shane wasn't depressed per se. He was beginning to not understand what was happening. He was losing motivation. He was getting very confused. He was deflated. He lost his physical drive, which we later learnt was him going into those first stages of dementia. He was suffering auditory hallucinations and you could see in his eyes that he was fading away. It became a big concern for him and he knew he wasn't himself. In the Medical Journal of Australia today, researchers report their findings from the first three years of the Australian Sports Brain Bank, during which the brains of 21 donors were studied. Neuropathologist Dr Michael Buckland is from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and the University of Sydney. We found that 12 of those 21 brains donated from players of contact sports had evidence of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. The autopsies revealed telltale signs of the disease, one of which is a substance called tau. It's best known for accumulating in another degenerative brain disease, Alzheimer's. Now tau is actually a normal protein in the brain. It's present in pretty much all nerve cells in the brain. But in CTE, tau gets abnormally folded and aggregates specifically at the depths of the cortical sulci of the brain. So as you know, the brain is sort of all lumpy, bumpy on the outside and the sulci are the valleys right down in the crevices of that lumpy, bumpy outer surface of the brain. So you get tau accumulating specifically the depths of those sulci around small blood vessels. Some experts believe that this tau is directly related to traumatic head injuries and in the case of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it's a history of concussion. While football codes have been tightening concussion protocols, Dr Buckland is worried about the risk of repeated, more minor head knocks. It is the sub-concussive hits, so hits to the head where it hurts but you're not concussed and a professional player of contact sports would be exposed to thousands of these sort of hits over their playing lifetime. And it's probably a dose response. The more hits you have, the more you're likely to have CTE. What also stands out to him from the brain bank data is that six of the 12 donors found to have CTE died by suicide. While he doesn't have enough data yet, he does suspect CTE is a risk factor. We can't say for sure, but I'm deeply concerned that there is a causal relationship there. Most of the donors to the brain bank had already shown symptoms or had concerns, so the research so far is not a clear indication of how prevalent CTE is in people with a history of head trauma. Professor Christopher Levi is a neurologist and director of the John Hunter Hospital Sports Concussion Clinic. The neurodegenerative conditions as a whole, Alzheimer's disease being the most common, of course, these are what we call very complex conditions that are underpinned by a mixture of genetic and environmental risk factors. And we know that there will be many other potential confounding exposures that can predispose to neurodegeneration, including this particular rarer form of neurodegeneration, CTE. While there's still a lot to learn about CTE, a priority is to find a way to diagnose it in life, paving the way for treatments to be developed, as well as prevention. Some of the emerging scanning technologies are able to image elements in the brain that 
part of the pathology of these various neurodegenerative conditions. But unfortunately, so far, there's nothing that's really broken through, but huge amount of work going on in that space to look at how you can intervene in different parts of the pathological pathway. That's the future. Renee Tuck hopes to see that happen too. She remembers learning that her brother had CTE. For her family, it was a relief to get answers. If anything, it sort of helped our trauma a little bit to help us understand, okay, he was not joking when he said he wasn't okay and and there was no cure whatsoever and there was nothing we could have done. So we were just grateful we got to love him and support him in his final days, I suppose. Rennie Tuck with Sarah Sedger reporting. This has been The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Next week, Tegan will be presenting the program with Belinda Smith. So do join them. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.